In the first half of the 6th century BC, after the conquest of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jews, at the height of his power over a vast and magnificent empire, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made an image. The text of Daniel chapter 3 doesn't say what form that image took, but the implication seems to be that it was an image of himself, a monument, a testament to his own glory. Daniel does record that the image was made of gold and was of enormous stature, 60 cubits in height and six cubits in breadth. That is 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, rising nine stories over the Babylonian plain. This image of Nebuchadnezzar would have blazed in the splendor of the Middle Eastern sun as the sun rose in the east and set in the west like a fire on the Babylonian plains. Daniel also tells us that Nebuchadnezzar erected this image on a particular plain, the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, he records in Daniel 3.2, which is the very same location on which another tower was built several millennia earlier, the Tower of Babel. You remember from Genesis chapter 11 that the Tower of Babel was constructed with two primary goals in mind. Number one, for the people to make a name for themselves. It was a monument to the glory of man. A testament to their ingenuity, their own power, their own independence and sufficiency, and their lack of any need for the God of heaven. And number two, it was a way to gather the nations, the people, the tribes, and the languages together in a direct act of defiance against the sovereign command of God to do the very opposite, namely to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It seems from the text of Daniel 3 that Nebuchadnezzar had the same two goals in mind when he built his tower. The image was a testimony to his own greatness, his own power, his his own ingenuity, his own strength, his own glory. And it was intended to unify the subjects of his vast empire, as demonstrated by the fact that he summoned all of the officials and all of the representatives from every corner of his realm. Nebuchadnezzar declared, Daniel 3, verses 4 and 5, that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should fall down and worship the golden image or else be cast alive into a burning furnace of fire. This was something that the true saints of God simply could not do. For the first law of the covenant commands that all of God's people shall have no other gods before them. Three men in particular, Jewish exiles who had arisen in the ranks of the Babylonian government by the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, quietly refused the order. They didn't make a fuss of it, but as often happens, their resistance was soon found out. Certain wicked men accused them before the king, Daniel 3.12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar fell into a furious 
rage and commanded that the three men be brought before him. And he demanded of them whether the charges were true and commanded them to fall down and to worship the golden image and so spare their lives or else be incinerated in the fiery furnace. He then underscored his threat with a very interesting statement, a blasphemous boast against the God of heaven. Daniel 3.15. But if you do not worship, You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who is able to deliver you out of my hands? What happened next? The men's response, the fiery furnace, God's deliverance is legendary. And we'll return to the story at the end of this message. But I begin with this passage from Daniel 3 because it forms the backdrop for much of Revelation 13. Indeed, the parallels between Revelation 13 and Daniel 3 are many. Let me point out just a few. In Revelation, as we have seen already and will see, particularly in chapters 17 and 18, Babylon stands as a symbol for the kingdom of this world. While the events of Daniel chapter 3 take place in the literal kingdom of Babylon, which became typological of all later evil empires to come that would rise to prominence and persecute the saints of God. Babylon and Babylon. In Revelation 13, the beast stands for the wicked ruler or the wicked regime which rules in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is the beast who rules in Babylon. In Revelation 13, the beast is granted authority, verse 7, over every tribe and people and language and nation. And an image of the beast is made before which all are commanded to worship. Chapter 13, verse 8, and verses 15 to 16. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has an image made before which he commands all the people's nations and languages to worship. In Revelation 13, the beast makes war upon the saints and conquers them, 13.7. And this persecution, as we're going to find out today, revolves around the issue of worship and loyalty. In other words, the issue in today's text is whether the saints will worship the beast's image and receive the beast's mark, or else be slain or impoverished because they can't buy or sell. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes the exact same threat. He makes the worship of his image a test of loyalty throughout his realm, and the cost of refusing his order is death. In Revelation 13, it says that the beast is given a mouth uttering blasphemies against God, verses 5 and 6. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar lifts up his eyes to heaven and taunts the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, declaring that their God is not strong enough to deliver them out of his hand. There's nothing new under the sun. What we find in Daniel 3 is just one of innumerable manifestations of the beast throughout history. As wicked king after wicked king has arisen to exalt himself above the Most High, to receive to himself the worship of the nations and to make war upon the saints of the Most High. In Daniel's day, it was the king of Babylon. 
In John's day, it was the Caesar of Rome. And from our perspective, it's not difficult to look back down through the annals of history and identify various beasts throughout the ages. What is far more challenging is to look in our own day and to see who the beasts are. How does the beast manifest himself in the present? In a postmodern world, what is his image and what does it look like to worship before it? What does it look like to receive his mark and to yield to his command? Identifying the beast in our own day is made difficult because of the work of another beast. Another demonic power whom we meet in today's passage. The reason it is difficult to identify the beast in the present, his image, his mark, his character, is because of the deceptive work of the beast's minister of propaganda, the false prophet who is known in this passage as the beast from the earth. Few in Germany, for instance, saw Hitler for the monster that he was until it was too late. Why? From our perspective of history, we can look back, listen to the recordings of some of his speeches, and you hear monstrous, beastly things coming out of his mouth. Why did they not recognize it? Well, chiefly because of the brilliant work of a certain man named Joseph Goebbels who was Hitler's minister of propaganda. And what Goebbels did was to present Hitler to the German masses, not as a monster, but as a savior, who was going to restore to Germany glory after the humiliation that they had received at the Treaty of Versailles. Goebbels played the false prophet to Hitler's beast during the dark days of the Third Reich. Dennis Johnson writes this, a comment commentator on the book of Revelation, he says, quote, whereas the power of the first beast is overt and coercive, the influence of the second is covert and deceptive. While the beast uses brute force and threats of violence to gather the nations to himself, the false prophet uses the power of propaganda, the power of deception to seduce the nations into following and worshiping the beast. It's as if the false prophet throws a veil over the beast in order to hide his monstrous, beastly features so that all the world can see when they look at him is the allure and the seductive power of his charisma. But this text, chapter 13 and verse 18, calls us to wisdom. It calls the saints to wisdom. It calls the church to the wisdom that can recognize the beast for what he is. Looking past the false prophet's deceptions. Identify his image, identify his mark, and resist him even unto death. Before we jump into the details of the second half of Revelation 13, though, I think a word is in order with regard to a larger theme that's beginning to emerge in the book of Revelation and will have a very prominent role as we move into the latter chapters of this book. And it's the theme of counterfeits. 
We touched on it last week. Beginning in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 and continuing all the way to the end of Revelation 20, we are introduced to three principal figures who form a counterfeit trinity of sorts. A counterfeit trinity that mimics and competes with the Holy Trinity, which is comprised of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We saw last week that the beast from the sea, or the figure who is known henceforth simply as the beast, is a counterfeit Christ. I gave you 13 ways in which Revelation 13 alone presents the beast as a counterfeit Christ, a false messiah. Now we find that the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet form a counterfeit Godhead, an unholy trinity, if you will. I'm going to point out three parallels in Revelation 13 between the counterfeit trinity and the true trinity, the unholy trinity and the holy and everlastingly blessed Godhead. The dragon, let's start with him. The dragon counterfeits God the Father by creating a counterfeit son. When he summons the beast out of the sea and fashions the beast into his own image. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Both, you'll notice, having ten horns and seven heads. He grants to this beast, his son, authority. Chapter 13, verse 2 and verse 4. So that the beast will be worshipped along with the dragon. The very same things that the Father has done in the Son. Granting to the Son His authority in order that all the nations would worship the Son even as they worship the Father. The beast counterfeits God the Son in a multitude of ways as we saw last week. Including the fact that He suffered a mortal wound and then was healed. Thus appearing to be slain and then raised from the dead. Chapter 13 verse 3 and verse 14. Even as the lamb was slain, and in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6 is seen standing before the throne. Raised from the dead, behold, I am he who died, and yet I am alive forevermore. This causes the whole earth to marvel the beast, even as the saints, by virtue of the resurrection of Christ, worship the lamb. The beast from the sea, known elsewhere as the false prophet, counterfeits the Holy Spirit in that he is sent by the beast and by the dragon with the authority of the beast, chapter 13 and verse 12, to work miraculous signs, verses 13 and 14, and so to deceive the nations into worshiping the beast. Even as the Holy Spirit was sent forth by the Father and the Son with the authority of Christ in order to exalt the Son in the sight of all peoples. The false prophet even seals the followers of the beast with a mark, verse 16. Even as we have seen already in chapter 7, and we'll see again in chapter 14, that the Lamb seals His followers by means of the Holy Spirit with the name of His Father and of His Christ. That John intends for us to see these three figures, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, as a 
group, a triumvirate, as you will, a, an unholy trinity, is clear from Revelation sixteen thirteen and Revelation 20 and verse 10, where they are shown together. They're shown as a trinity. In sixteen thirteen, gathering the nations together for that final battle, which is known as Armageddon, and then in Revelation 20 and 10, being cast together into the lake which burns with fire and sulfur forever and ever. It's an unholy trinity and they will be featured prominently until we reach the conclusion of Revelation chapter 20. Now, in the time that remains, what I want to do is walk through verses 11 to 18 and I want to examine the third person of the unholy trinity. The false prophet who is known in this text as the beast from the earth. Then we'll conclude with verse 18 and that call for wisdom and for the perseverance and faith that are required in order to see through and to resist his powerful and seductive influence. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Why this second beast rises out of the earth when the first beast rose out of the sea is Kind of a matter of speculation, but the most likely explanation that I've run across is that Daniel 7 is still in the background of this text, even as it was in the background of the first half of Revelation 13. And in Daniel 7, Daniel sees in his night vision four beasts at the beginning of the chapter, he says, four beasts are arising out of the sea. And yet when the angel interprets the vision in Daniel 7, 17, he says, these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And so what John is doing by taking out of the sea beasts from the sea and taking out of the earth beasts from the earth and combining them together into these two figures, he's showing us that all of Revelation 13 is dealing with the same subject matter as Daniel chapter 7. At any rate, the beast from the earth looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. This points to the false prophet's deceptive nature. Jesus warned us about this throughout this age, did he not? Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're everywhere. This false prophet looks like a lamb, gentle, harmless, but it speaks with the forked tongue of a serpent. Which points to the fact that the false prophet's weapon of choice is deception. Verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So if verse 11 teaches us that the primary weapon of the false prophet is deception, verse 12 reveals to us his primary aim, which is to induce the whole world to worship the beast. Now we know from last week that the false prophet is successful. For chapter 13 and verse 8 tell us all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. So everyone who is not kept by the electing power of God and is not 
preserved by the saving power of the blood of the Lamb, will be powerless before the seductions of the false prophet. Powerless before the deception of his lies. How does he induce, though? How how does he induce the whole world to worship such a hideous, evil creature? Verses 13 and 14 reveal that. The beast from the earth, the false prophet, performs great signs. Even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The false prophet is a counterfeit Moses who performed great signs in the sight of all the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. The false prophet is a counterfeit Elijah who called down fire from heaven in the sight of all Israel and the prophets of Baal. The false prophet is a counterfeit apostle. The apostles who were granted the authority to perform signs and wonders in order that those who witnessed the signs and the wonders might worship Christ. Again, Jesus warned us of this very thing. He said during this age, during the tribulation of this age, Matthew 24, 11 and 24, many false prophets will arise and will lead many astray. Verse 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. John is showing us that the false prophet is a counterfeit of the church and of the spirit who empowers and indwells the church. Think back two chapters to Revelation chapter 11 where the church was pictured as two witnesses, two prophets who speak the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit in the spirit and power of Moses and Elijah. Before the nations of the earth. That's what the false prophet is mimicking. God has his witnesses. And the dragon has his. The false prophet is mimicking the church. Which leads me to believe that the false prophet. May often in this age take the form of a counterfeit church. Making an unholy alliance with the state. Beware. Beware especially in the coming years in this country, of a church that gets too cozy with the government. They're heading in two opposite directions. And you will see churches that will resist, and you'll see churches that will bow the knee to the beast. Beware. But notice that this is all done by God's sovereign decree. The false prophet can only do what he is allowed to do. He is only allowed to deceive those whom he is allowed to deceive. Which brings us back to the point that the false prophet is an instrument of judgment in the hand of a sovereign God who sits on the throne. Which is exactly what Paul said when speaking of the very same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10 as we saw Several weeks ago, where Paul says that 
The unbelieving world refused to love the truth and so be saved. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Therefore, God sends upon them a strong delusion. He sends upon them a strong delusion. And the false prophet is the instrument through which he spreads this strong delusion. With the result that the peoples of the earth may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It is the judgment of God. The aim of the false prophet, according to these verses, is to induce the world to make an image of the beast. He wants the world to bow before an idol. Now, if we are correct in our approach to Revelation, and we are, rest assured, and these, thank you, and these seven vision cycles from Revelation 6 to the end of Revelation 20 are recapitulations. They're cycling through the same series of events from different angles. They're describing the entirety of this age of tribulation between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Then the false prophet, like the beast, as we saw last week, like the image of the beast and like the mark of the beast, is not something that we're looking ahead to only in the future, but something that has been in the world already since Christ ascended on high. Many manifestations throughout this age have been, are, and will be to come. In John's day, for instance, the vision likely had reference to the cult of the Caesars. That's what his people were dealing with in Asia Minor at the end of the first century A.D. It was rampant throughout Asia Minor. By the end of the first century, every major city in the region, including every single one, every one of the seven cities to which the letters of Revelation were written, had in the center of their town or up on a hill overlooking the town, a temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar as a god. It was pervasive in their towns. So when John wrote about a beast and wrote about a false prophet, they knew exactly what he was talking about. In John's day, the beast stood for Caesar and for Rome. The false prophet referred to the imperial cult or the worship of the Caesars, which deceived the masses, induced the masses, whether by deception and seduction or by the threat of violence, to worship Caesar as a god. The image of the beast would be those statues of Caesar before which you would walk into the temple and before these statues of Caesar, you would burn incense, bow the knee, and say three little words, Caesar is Lord. The false prophet and the image of the beast have taken different forms in different times in different places, but always with the same aim. To induce the nations to worship and follow the dragon and the beast rather than God and his Christ. Verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So that the image of the beast might even speak. And might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Evidently, the false prophet is exceptionally good at his job. 
He gives breath to the image of the beast. He animates it. He empowers it. He makes it appear before the eyes of the people omnipotent and glorious. Such that the image speaks. And when it speaks, it commands all who will not worship the image to be slain. Just like Nebuchadnezzar issued the death sentence to all who would not worship his image. And I think the sense of the symbolism is that the false prophet breathes power and life into the image of the beast. Whatever form that takes, such that worship of the beast becomes a matter of life or death. Indeed, worship, loyalty, obeisance to the beast becomes the determining factor of whether or not a citizen, whether small or great, rich or poor, free or slave, is allowed to survive in the state over which the beast rules. Those who worship the image of the beast are granted a mark on the right hand or forehead which marks them as loyal subjects of the beast. And thus they are allowed to live. They are allowed to buy or sell. They, they rise through the ranks of the government. Those without the mark, those who refuse to bow before the beast and worship his image are slain or sent to German concentration camps or put on trains to Soviet gulags or denied government jobs or denied tenure in the university, ostracized in society as intolerant, narrow-minded bigots, hate mongers. That's what those who will not bow before the beast are called. We hear any of that today? So let's pause here and summarize what we've learned from Revelation 13. With regard to the beast, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet, who's the beast from the earth. Three things. Number one, the beast stands for any satanically empowered ruler or regime which arises throughout this age to draw the people of the earth, away from the one true God and to establish itself as the object of the people's worship and hope and devotion. The beast is the Antichrist who makes war upon the saints and seeks throughout this age to destroy the true church. Number two, the false prophet is the demonically empowered propagandist for the beast who induces the people, whether by signs and wonders or by threats and violence, to worship and follow the beast with unquestioning loyalty. The false prophet stands, therefore, for any inducement, whether within the church or without, to compromise with the idolatry that is the official religion of the state. And third, the image of the beast which signifies the worship of the beast, and the mark of the beast, which signifies ownership, take different forms in different ages and among different regimes, but always works to the same end. It commands the loyalty, the obedience, and the devotion of every citizen under the beast's sway. We're not merely talking about some barcode underneath the skin of your hand or some chip implanted in your forehead or any other fanciful ideas of what this might be. 
we're talking, for instance, about the choice of whether you're or not you're going to accept the ideology that is quickly becoming enshrined as the national religion of this country. Because you're going to have to if you're going to get ahead in entertainment. If you're going to get ahead in any publicly funded institution. If you're not going to be outcast and ostracized by this culture. I don't think we're talking about something material, some technological chip in our forehead. I think we're talking about what you see happening before your very eyes. With that in mind, although it is difficult and maybe dangerous to speculate about the details of matters which the Bible leaves vague and in the realm of imagery and symbolism, I think maybe it might be beneficial at least not necessarily looking at the present, but looking back on the past, to try to provide some historical examples of regimes that I think might qualify for beasts and false prophets. First, let's, let's journey back as we already have into John's day. Near the end of the first century, 90, 92 AD in Asia Minor. The beast, for the people who first received this revelation from John stood for Rome and its emperor, Caesar. The false prophet stood for the imperial cult, the worship of Caesar, and for its priests. The cult, with the authorization and the power and the authority of the beast, inducing all of the peoples of Asia Minor to worship Caesar as a god. The image of the beast would be the idols before which the people would bow and burn incense and declare that Caesar is Lord. The mark of the beast might be to have your name written in the city register of those who were known to be loyal citizens of Rome as evidenced by the fact that they participate in the civic religion of worshiping dead Caesars. And the saints who could never bow before an image of Caesar and declare that Caesar was Lord, were thrown into prison or put to death or mauled by lions or covered in pitch and set on fire as lamps. That's an ancient example. Let's journey into the modern age, like the last century, to the days of the Third Reich. The beast would then be Adolf Hitler in the Nazi regime. The false prophet would be Joseph Gables in the Ministry of Propaganda, which portrayed for about 20 years, or 15 years rather, Hitler as the savior of the German people and the Nazi government as the thousand-year empire. The image of the beast could be the Nazi flag with its swastika, which flew everywhere throughout the Reich. The mark of the beast could be the Nazi salute and the Heil Hitler, the Sieg Heil, and Anything else that all of the citizens of Germany were required to render mandatory for their good standing in society. And the saints, who could not in good conscience hail Hitler or support his monstrous regime, were sent to concentration camps where many of them died, like, for instance, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Or what about the communist state? See, the worship of the beast doesn't always take on a religious flavor. 
Sometimes it's atheistic. What about Soviet Russia? In this case, Stalin and the Soviet Union would be the beast. The Politburo, you remember that? The political bureau of the Central Communist Party. The propaganda arm of the party which controlled all information in and out of the country would be the false prophet. The image of the beast would probably be something invisible and immaterial like the communist ideals of the new man and the worker's paradise that were trumpeted to to children from kindergarten on up. The mark of the beast might be your communist party card or some other external show of loyalty to the state. And the saints, who by the grace and power of the Spirit saw life through a radically different worldview were constantly crushed beneath the boot of an atheistic state. They were thrown into prisons, they were sent to work camps, and they were tortured en masse in dark, dank, concrete prison rooms throughout the Soviet Empire. And behind them all, whether we're talking about Rome or Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia or communist China or any number of the hundreds of manifestations of the beast throughout this age, behind them all, there stands a dragon and all of the demonic forces of hell. It is no wonder that John ends Revelation 13 with a call for wisdom among the saints. That's what we need. We need wisdom or will be deceived like everyone else. We need wisdom so that we will not be deceived as have so many within the visible church throughout the age who thought, for instance, that you could burn incense to Caesar as a show of civic loyalty on Saturday and worship Christ in the spirit and truth on Sunday. You can't. And Revelation 13 was written to show you, you can't. We need wisdom lest we be deceived as those who were who imagine that you could hang the Nazi flag in the sanctuary and do your Nazi salute before opening prayers and then proceed on with holy worship. Revelation was written to show you that you can't. We need wisdom lest we, lest we be deceived into thinking that to bow before the image of Nebuchadnezzar does not violate the covenant command to have no other gods before the Lord. You can't. And neither can you, 21st century middle class Americans, imbibe the worldview that is being thrown out by the false prophet who lives in Washington in our day and take this scripture and mutilate it and eviscerate it and make it fit the worldview that you want it to fit and still call yourself a saint. You can't. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Find out what it is. Find out what form it takes in this region, in this age. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. No verse in all the Bible has engendered as much speculation as Revelation 13.8. You're looking at the most speculated upon version, or verse, rather, in the entire Bible. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know for sure what John means. I don't. 
it's likely that his audience knew what he meant. The churches of Asia Minor in the first century. But certainty eludes us. But this doesn't stop many from trying. Performing all manner of linguistic numerical gymnastics in the process. For instance, it was popular a generation or two ago to take the English alphabet and assign A a value of 100, B a value of 101, C 102, and so on and so forth. And if you do so, you will find that Hitler equates to 666, which sounds astonishing until you question why John, a first century Hebrew writing in ancient Greek, would use a modern English alphabet. Many have found that 666 is the numerical equivalent of Nero Caesar, which also sounds great. Sounds more contextual. Until you realize that this requires a Hebrew transliteration of the Greek form of a Latin name and that with a defective spelling. In fact, so many different attempts have been made throughout history to decipher the name of the man that equates to the number 666 that one writer actually came up with three tongue-in-cheek rules for making any name you want fit this number. Here's what he said. He said, number one, if the proper name itself will not yield the number, then add, add a title. Number two, if the sum cannot be found in Greek, try Hebrew or even Latin. And number three, don't be too particular about the spelling. He then concludes by saying this, we cannot infer much from the fact that a key fits the lock if it is a lock in which almost any key will fit. See, the fact of the matter is that attempts to find a man's name in this mysterious number probably miss the point. I'm not saying it doesn't equate to the name of a man. I'm saying that I don't know how to find it. Maybe, maybe one day it'll become clear to us. It's not clear to me and it's not clear to anyone I've read. So what I'm going to suggest is that we step back from Revelation 13, 8, 18, and we look at the point. And the point is this. The number's probably a symbol, number one, as all are nearly every other number in the book of Revelation. G.K. Beale, one commentator, suggests that in light of the vivid depiction of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet as a counterfeit trinity in Revelation 13, 666 should probably be understood as displaying the imperfection of the counterfeit as like as if it appears to equal perfection seven being the number of perfection so seven 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 but it always falls short it's intriguing i don't know if he's right but one who has here's the point one who has the wisdom for which john calls here will see through the mask will see through the powerful regime and the powerful ruler and will see behind it a hideous and evil beast the one who has wisdom will see through the propaganda of the false prophet the winds that blow across our culture and through our television screens and through our textbooks the one who has wisdom will refuse to bow before the beast's image and to receive the beast's mark because he has calculated the beast's number and has found him to be a counterfeit and not worthy to be compared with the glorious reality of the lamb. Therefore, he is willing to die rather than to bow and to worship the beast. 
Revelation 13 is intended to unmask the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet and to call the saints to wisdom. Verse 18. And to the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 10. So what does that look like? What what does it look like for the saints to exercise the wisdom to see through the facade to the underlying temptation to apostasy and to endure in faith through death, so as not to worship and follow the beast. Well, let me take you back to Daniel 3. To three saints, not so different from us, who are standing before the furious beast of Babylon as the flames of the fiery furnace are ascending higher and higher before their eyes. Here's what they said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know the rest of the story. How they were thrown bound with ropes into the raging furnace. And yet when the king looked, he saw not three but four men unbound, walking in the midst of the flames. And one of them, he reports, looked like a son of the gods in his appearance. And when the king called for them to come out, the three emerged unharmed. And all who stood by saw, Daniel 3.27, that the fire had no power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their head was not singed. Their clothes were not burned. They didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. Such is the power of the God whom they served, who is able to seal his servants and to keep them from everlasting harm. And even if their lot lies through captivity or even slaughter, as we saw in verse 10 last week, he is such a God who walks through the flames with them to the very end. Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not bow down before the beast and his image nor receive the mark of his name. Here is the call for wisdom. And here is the call for the perseverance and faith of the saints.